In unusual fashion, this week we opened a new series on Wednesday night. We usually kick off new series. We, we don't really even have a Wednesday night church service. And so we always kick off new series on Sunday mornings. But this week, we kicked it off on Wednesday night. That was because Wednesday night, as many of you probably know, was Ash Wednesday. And this year at Word of Grace, we're doing something new, something that we as a church family have never done. We are participating in and inviting everyone to observe Lent. And we are aware that many of us come from many, many different backgrounds. Some of you, when you hear terms like Lent or things like that, because of how you grew up, may or may not have even some negative connotations or stir up some memories that you'd rather keep put away. Some of you hear terms and ideas like this, and for you, it's like a nostalgia trigger. You're like, oh, yeah, I remember that, and it brings up some good memories and stuff. And then there might be some of you who, like me, maybe you grew up in a house where I didn't even hear the word Lent until I was in my 20s because the, the, the vein of Christianity that I grew up in was one where we ran as hard as we could away from anything that sounded liturgical or traditional. And, and so as I've grown and as I've learned more and more, as we all ought to continue to keep growing and learning more and more, I think there are things like this that are practices that we can go, man, there are some good, really good things that can come out of this as long as we fight to make sure that our heart, our motives, our intentions are right. Because if they're not, then it is a bad practice. But if we can keep our, our motives and our heart and our intentions right before God and make sure that we observe things like this in a way that we can give glory and honor to God, then man, it can be a wonderful and powerful thing to observe. I'd encourage you, if you didn't log on Wednesday night to watch that Ash Wednesday service, um, I'd encourage you to go back on our YouTube page or our Facebook page uh, to watch that service because we spent a lot of time really covering a lot of things that we don't have time to cover today, but basically saying why we're practicing Lent this year, um, how to do it right, things to avoid, um, and really the, the motive of this season of Lent being one where we're introspective, evaluating ourselves, where we're considering uh, sin and the weight of sin, the ramifications of sin, what sin required, and even uh, the dangers of sin today. And we talked about the fall of man. So I'd encourage you once more, if you weren't able to watch it Wednesday night, go back and watch it if you haven't done so already. Um, some good stuff. Wednesday night, we spent some time looking at original sin. We were looking at the fall of man. Remembering that Adam, the creation of God, made in the image of God, meant to give glory to God as his image bearer, made for the purposes of God, given clear commandments from God, dwelling nonstop in the goodness and blessings of God, invited sin into God's holy creation. He invited sin into the creation that was holy and good. Remember everything that God created after he created it? What did he say? It is good. And Adam, the creation of God that was created good without sin, holy and righteous, because that's only the types of things that God can create, listened to the deceiver, rebelled against God, and invited sin into God's creation. The creation of God that was meant and purposed to continue to roll glory back up to him. 
that all of the goodness of God that we saw in the world and we still see today in creation when we see the majesty of God's creation is meant to roll glory back up to God. But that creation, Adam, in whom we were all represented, invited sin in. And we see the consequences of that sin and what God pronounces over all of the earth, over the serpent, over Adam and Eve. The consequences of sin were severe and tremendous. And they were justified as well. They were warranted because of what, uh, what Adam did in inviting sin into God's creation. The consequences and ripples of sin are far-reaching. The consequences and ripples of sin are far-reaching. We can see it and experience it today, that today the suffering we experience, the sorrow that we feel, the, all the heaviness of evil in our world, all of that stuff exists today because of one decision many, 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 many years ago. That sin brought brokenness into this world. Sin affects our relationships. It affects our relationship with God. It affects our relationship with our spouse. It affects our relationship with our family, with our children, with our friends, with our coworkers, with our, our colleagues, our, our classmates, our random people that we meet. Sin affects all relationships. Sin also affects the entire earth. We've seen this in natural disasters. We've seen this in everything that's been going on in our world. If you haven't noticed, 2020 was a good year to help you realize the ramifications of sin. A global pandemic, social tensions and riots, political war, turmoil. Sin has been put on billboards all over. Every channel, every commercial, like sin, you, it's everywhere. The ramifications and consequences are far-reaching. There was a curse placed on the earth resulting in sickness, natural disasters, famines, plagues, and more. And man would have to toil and sweat to take care of his family rather than reaping the rewards of God's abundant provision in the garden. Women would experience the severe pains of labor and delivery. I've been in that delivery room twice. Wow. Like, just break my hand, honey. Go for it. I'll be all right. Looks like you're doing a lot worse than me. Although the consequences of sin, all those things that we just cited, all the things, all the pain, all the suffering, all the sickness, injury, hatred, all that stuff that are terrible and severe, the most grievous consequence of the fall was the inherited sin nature. The sin nature is worse than natural disasters. The sin nature that we receive is worse than sickness. The sin nature that was received by man is worse than the global pandemic. It's the worst ramification. Again, Adam and Eve, man and woman, were created good. It is good. And when they sinned, they became spiritually dead. They receive that sin nature. That's where you can hear Jesus in the New Testament talking to some Pharisees and saying, you don't hear me, you don't receive my words because you're not of my father, rather you're of your father, the devil. Because every single one of us, born in sin, until we're made new in Christ Jesus, have a sin nature making our father the devil. Yikes, that's not something we like to hear, is it? That sounds really bad, and the truth is it is really bad. 
This is the worst thing that happened. Although mosquitoes and poison ivy, thorns and thick uh, thistles, sickness, famines, hurricanes, tornadoes are all terrible in their own right. They're all bad. None of those things can do the damage in one's life that the sin nature can. Because, again, this is one thing that Paul mentions in the New Testament when he's basically saying, you guys can kill me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Because the things that can be done to our body are only temporal. They're only temporary. But the things that can be done to our eternal soul are eternally dangerous, have eternal ramifications. That's why Paul said, don't fear those who can kill the body. Rather, fear the one who can kill the soul. He's talking about fear God. Don't fear man. No man, this is the point of what it says in Romans chapter 8 where he's going on through this laundry list of saying none of these things, famine, pestilence, persecution, no man, no angel, no demon, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying all these things that we experience day in and day out as a result of the sin nature, we don't need to fear those things. We need to fear God. Before the sin nature entered man, because those are external things, right? We're talking about famine, plagues, sickness, all that kind of stuff. Those are external consequences. But before the sin nature entered man, there was no greed in the heart of man. There was no jealousy in the heart of man. There was no pride in the heart of man. There was no lust in the heart of man. There was no racism in the heart of man. There was no hatred in the heart of man, but the inherited sin nature corrupted every single heart, every single heart. That's why it says in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is why it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then again, it says in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, no one understands, no one seeks after God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Scripture teaches over and over in case, in case you're starting to think, I know there's bad people out there. I know that there are really bad people in the world. These passages do not let us think that we're amongst the good ones because it's saying there's none good, not one. Not one desires to honor God. No one seeks, no one understands. And this is why the most, one of the most common and most dangerous ideas that the fallen human mind has contrived is the thought that I'm a good person. This is one of the most dangerous thoughts the fallen human mind has contrived. The idea that I'm a good person. And every single one of us have thought this at moments in our lives. Because we look at what other people have done, we look at the news or what we hear in the rumor weed, or, well, VeggieTales, dad, okay. <laughs> what we've heard in the rumor mill, that's also VeggieTales. The grapevine, there we go. We listen to things that we've heard about others in rumors. We entertain gossip, which is a sin in and of itself. 
We, we, we look at the lives of other people and the things that they've done that are really bad and we'll sweep our white lies under the rug, we'll sweep our gossip under the rug, we'll sweep our gluttony under the rug, we'll sweep our pride under the rug, we'll sleep, sweep our uh, momentary lustful thoughts under the rug and go, at least I'm not doing that stuff. I'm pretty good. Compared to those other fallen humans, I'm a better fallen human. You're still fallen. That's the problem, is the sin nature. We have account after account after account throughout Scripture of the best of us, the fathers of the faith, the biblical patriarchs putting on full display that every one of us needs a Savior. Adam ate the forbidden fruit, which he was clearly commanded by God not to do, and invited sin in and lost life. Abraham, who was counted righteous because of his faith, then acted in sin and laid with a woman who wasn't his wife because he began to doubt the promise of God, then in fear lied several times about his wife after that. Sarah laughed when she heard God's promise because she doubted God's word. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron melted all this jewelry together to create a golden calf even right after God had spectacularly and miraculously led the entire nation of Israel out of Egyptian captivity and slavery through spectacular miracles, even right after that goes, oh, Moses has been gone 40 days. I guess let's all melt our jewelry together and we'll worship this cow. Moses disobeyed the clear command of God and struck the rock after God told him to speak to it. David, the man after God's own heart, Scripture calls him, commits adultery and then has the woman's husband murdered to cover up his adultery. Jacob was just all around shady, deceitful, conniving. And that's the guy who would become Israel, whose children would become the 12 tribes of Israel. That's just a few. The Bible's full of these people who are flawed, that even in moments, God used them in his sovereignty to show his plan, to show his will, begin the process of redemption that would start in the Old Testament, be revealed in the New Testament, and would culminate in what we are longing for. God has all these sinful people so that we can look at them and go, man, something's still wrong with them. Even though that, That's why we don't want to be David. That's why I'm not going, man, God, help me fight my giants, because David was a sinner. David needed a savior. Every single hero of the faith was still flawed and are not my role models. My role model is Christ, because he's the only one who ever lived on this earth 33 years without sin, even though he was tempted in every way you and I are. He's the one. He is the one, the only one, who's worthy of emulation and following. Even Paul said, guys, follow me as I follow Christ. Because Paul was aware that he was also a sinner. Read Romans 7 if you doubt it. He was aware that he had a fallen nature, that even though he'd been made a new creation in Christ, there was still the war between the flesh and the spirit. And every single one of us who is a Christian, born of God, regenerated into that new creation it talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, every single one of us who is made new still has war between the flesh and the spirit. And if you're not mindful of that, guess which side's going to win? The flesh. That's why when, on Wednesday night, one of the verses we talked about was in James chapter 1, where James said, listen, 
Every man is tempted when he's led away. He's talking to Christians when he says this. Every man is tempted when he's led away by his own desires. And that desire, when, when that desire grows, it turns into sin. And then that sin, when it's fully conceived, becomes death. Every single one of us have the capacity for more sin. Every single one of us has the capacity for more destruction in our life through sin. This pattern and habit goes on for thousands and thousands of years, generation after generation. Finally, finally, in Psalms 51, David puts his thumb on the issue. Remember, David's the one who commits adultery, has her husband murdered to try and cover up his adultery. The prophet comes and confronts him and says, David, you've done a terrible thing. He tells him a story, and David's like, that's a terrible person. We need to judge them. And the prophet says, hey, bud, it's you. And what happens to David? And this is why he's a man after God's own heart, because when he was confronted with his sin, he was broken by it. Unlike Saul, his predecessor, who was confronted by his sin and made excuses. Saul was confronted by his sin and tried to justify the actions. God, I, I wanted to save this stuff for you, to give glory and offer sacrifices to you. And God's going, that's not what I said. David gets confronted by his sin and it is broken. And he weeps. And we have in Psalm 51 a beautiful record of what we ought to do when we're confronted by our sin. Search me, O oh God. See if there be any wicked way in me. O oh God, don't take your spirit from me. And then in Psalm 51, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David understood by the revelation of God that every single one of us was born in sin. For hundreds of years and thousands of years, we see people trying to be good and having moments of success or moments where it looks like they're good, and then every one of them just crashing and burning. Why? Because the problem remained the same. The sin nature that Adam received, he passed on to his kids, and it's an immediate display in the fact that Cain murders his brother out of jealousy. And then you can see it in the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. When you read the Old Testament, especially if you're in a Bible reading plan where you're reading through the whole Old Testament, there are plenty of times where you go, whoa, yikes, gross, evil, wickedness. But I thought that was the dude that, wait a minute, but that's the guy that God used to, wait a minute, a bunch of flawed sinners like you and me that God used in his plan but yet did not allow us to put our hope in them to where we go, wow, Abraham, or wow, Moses, or wow, David, man after God's own heart. But that at the fullness of time when Christ would be manifest on the earth, we could really go, wow, wow, look at what he did, look what he accomplished, look how he lived. And why is Jesus Christ different than all the rest of us? Here it is, here's the catch. Why we just celebrated Christmas, why was the virgin birth so important? Immaculate conception, was it just so we could go, see, he's God, he was born of a virgin. It's a sign, that's part of it. But the real reason why it mattered is it says in Matthew chapter one, verse 21, that Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. Why does that matter so much? Because he was the first man after Adam that was not born in sin. 
He was born with his father's holy, perfect, and righteous nature, which is why unlike us, when we're tempted, sometimes we stumble and fall. Jesus was tempted greatly. Scripture teaches that he was tempted in every way. You and I have been tempted, but without sin. And this is what qualifies him to be the sacrificial lamb of God. So that as when the law was given and perfect spotless lambs had to be sacrificed to pay for sin, Jesus Christ shows up. He's walking up to the river and John the Baptist is standing there. And what does he declare as he sees Jesus approaching? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Come on, guys. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the only one who ever lived without sin, where we could trust him as the sacrifice to pay for our sin because he never did sin and it qualified him to pay for our sin and take our sin upon himself on the cross. Praise God. But in God's timing, he implements phase one of his historical plan of redeeming his creation. He appointed Abraham to be the father of the nation Israel. That would be the people of God, but it was not simply that you were the people of God because you were a descendant of Abraham. We know that through Moses, God gave his law. Because even though uh, these were the chosen people of God, the people through which God would reveal his will and his ways, these people still had the same issues. The same issue that everyone in history had, the same issue that all of us have. They still had that stinking sin nature. Even though God says, you're the people through which, you're the people I'm going to make my covenant with. You're the people that I'm going to show to the world my will and my way. You're the people that I'm going to bless. As long as you obey me, as long as you abstain from what I tell you to abstain from, as long as you observe what I tell you to observe, I will bless you. I will provide for you. I will care for you. God gave his law through Moses. And in that moment, the nation of Israel thought, wow, God is making a way for us to be in relationship with him. God's giving his law and saying, all right, you want to be my people? Here's what I require. And the funny thing is, every time the law was read in the the assembly of the nation of Israel, every time that that law was dictated, it's so funny when you read, it says the entire nation said, we will do it every word. We've been there, right? In the moments of inspiration where you've been in a church service or you hear some preaching and you're so inspired and motivated that you're like, yeah, I'm giving Jesus everything I've got. That's the same thing that the fallen Israelites did. And they said, we will do it every word. And God's probably sitting on his throne going, it's cute. (laughs) But no, you won't. Because you haven't seen the problem yet. You haven't realized you're incapable. So God gives the law, gives the Ten Commandments, then afterwards he gives over 600 Levitical commands because he wanted the people to realize in all their striving and all their efforts to try and uphold their end of the bargain, to try and fulfill their side of the contract, that if we do this and don't do this, then God will bless us and keep us. And even if we falter a little bit, even if we stumble, then we can offer sacrifices Let's go to Romans chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 9. Remembering that the Israelites had the same exact problem. 
They still had the sin nature. Romans chapter three, verse nine. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks, and that Greek there is meant to imply everyone that's not a Jew. Jews and Greeks are under sin. All are. As it is written, and he starts quoting Psalm 14, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Notice that wording there. So that. The law says it speaks, or what the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, God gives the law and in that moment, the Israelites were thinking, awesome, hey, now God has given us his parameters. We can now know what we need to do to stay in his blessing, to be his people. God has made it clear now so we can do this. Now that we know what God wants, all right, we will do it every word. Except they don't. And all of us, now as New Testament believers, we can see that in the law, and we've kind of made our own laws today, where we go, all right, if I want to be a Christian, well, I've got to go to church, and I've got to read my Bible, and I've got to pray, and I've got to do good deeds, I've got to fast every now and then, Lent, <laughs> I've got to do all these things and make sure that I'm helping sweet little old ladies carry their groceries across the street and open the door for my wife, and here, as long as I do all these types of things that I know are the things that I should do, and I abstain from the things that I know I shouldn't do, we've done the same exact thing, just modernizing in our perspective, where we make law and we try to let those things be the reasons why we think we're in relationship with God. And just like the Old Testament people of God, we do good and then we do bad. We'll do well for a little while and then we'll falter. Why? Because the same issue that has existed all along is that sin nature. God gave the law, not so of what we just read in Romans chapter 3. God didn't give the law so that we could go, all right, we're going to do it all, and we did it, and yay, we're God's people. We see in scripture that God gave the law as the hurdle that was too high to jump, as the weight that was too heavy to lift, so that the people who thought by their own consciousness that they thought that they knew what God would require, and I'm going to be good this way, God goes, okay, you think you know what's good? Here's more. Here's my commands. Here's 600 plus laws. Do that stuff. So they would go, okay, yeah, yeah, we got this. We're going to do it. Every word. And then that law would crush them. That the law would be so 
heavy because every person was weakened by sin. That's why the law became so heavy as we try to white knuckle, as we try to willpower our way into God's good graces, the law crushes us because its, a, it's standard is essentially be perfect. But nobody's perfect, which is why we have sacrifices. And we'll do the same thing in the new covenant today. We'll go, ah, nobody's perfect, but we've got Jesus. And that's true. But a lot of people, a lot of people, me, for 26 years of my life, until God truly saved me, would go, I know Jesus died on the cross for me. I know I'm saved by grace. But I would try in my heart, the motive of my heart was to try and be good enough so that God would go, wow. Hey, guys, Stephen's really doing a good job. Like, compared to his brothers, <laughs> his brothers are those pastor's kids. He's that pastor's kid that, yeah, good job. Way to be poster child for Christianity. Thanks for giving everyone else hope in the Christian child. <laughs> and I did everything I could to try and cover up and hide the wickedness in my heart, the sin in my heart, the greed, the pride, the jealousy, the lust, until finally 26 years old, I got sick of being fake. I got sick of hiding sin. And when I was finally willing to look in the mirror and go, I am screwed up. I don't got this. 26 years of trying to lift the modern Christian law on my shoulders until finally at 26 years old, it crushed me. And I was finally willing to say, I'm messed up. And I've been trying as hard as I could for 26 years to keep everyone else from knowing how messed up Stephen is. And I just got to come out and say, I'm a wicked, perverted, evil, greedy, jealous person. And to my friends, my leaders at that time in my life where I was at in Texas, where all my life I was scared of letting people see what was happening in here, in my heart. God truly saved me in that moment because I was willing to acknowledge how messed up I was. And one of the challenges is, in some senses, it's a little more difficult for people who grow up in church to come to that point because you're taught the law of God. You're taught Christian moral values. You're taught godly standards and rules, and how to be a Christian, and they're all good things. I have two daughters. I care about nothing more as a parent than them coming to authentic saving faith in Christ. There's nothing more important to me, which is why I'm careful when I'm teaching my daughters. I don't, I don't tell them, where does Jesus live? In my heart. I don't tell them that, I don't get them to recite that because he doesn't live in their heart yet. They're sinners, born in sin. They have not been regenerated by the Spirit of God yet. We have baptism tonight. I personally am going to, as my girls grow, and they're taught in church Christian moral values, which is a good thing, I'm going to have to labor and, and trust the wisdom of God to help me Talk to my daughters in a way that at some point in their life, 
as they continue to sin and continue to sin, try and wait for the right window where the Holy Spirit would lead me to a point where I could say, why do you think that's still a problem for you? Where when my daughters continue to struggle with sins over and over and over, I'm not trying to just get them to repeat a prayer after me. I want them to come to a place like I did when I was 26 to where they can go, oh no, something's wrong in here. That's the problem. Something's wrong with my heart. It's not that I don't know right from wrong. I do. It's that my heart is incapable of motivating me to continually do right from wrong. That's the problem. That's why we need Christ. That's why the prophecies in the Old Testament of Jeremiah and Ezekiel say that a new covenant is going to come in which he will remove our stony, stubborn heart and replace it with a heart of flesh, tender and responsive, wanting to obey God and do his word. And I just want to challenge you right now and confront you and make sure that you're not letting yourself be 26-year-old Stephen who's grown up in church and it's thought, because I go to church and I pray and I do a lot of good things, have you ever felt the weight of your sin to where you can finally go, I'm not okay? Have you come to the realization of why you needed Jesus Christ? This is the purpose of the season of Lent, is to sit and feel the burden of sin. And not only that, after being confronted by the consequences and the burdens of sin, letting then the heavier burden of the law sit on us and crush us. Sorry, camera guys. To let that heavy burden sit on us and crush us to where we get a place where we can finally say, this is too heavy for me to lift. I can't pick this up anymore. I tried, and I tried, and I think I'm starting to realize that the purpose of the law was not so I could pick it up, but so that a Savior stronger than me, greater than me, outside of me, above me, preeminent above all things, could come into my sinful condition and lift it for me. That Jesus Christ, the God-man, not just a good teacher, not just a prophet, but the man who was God in the flesh, could come and fulfill the law obeying it perfectly in my place so that when he died on the cross, it would pay for my sins as the spotless lamb of God and that burden of the law comes up off of me and he receives me into his family as a child of God. Thank God for the law. Can we see the law rightly? Can we look at that law can we look at that burden and realize we don't got this? And I praise God if you're saved. I praise God if you've been made new by the Spirit of God. And for you now, it is are you clinging to Jesus Christ daily? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself daily? Because it's easy after you've come into grace to go, okay, I'm a child of God, and now i got to make sure that I keep that status by this performance, and you pick that law right back up again. Good works are the fruit 
of the Holy Spirit in our life. The famous passage, we learn it in children's church, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we take that list and we go, see, here's how you behave as a Christian. That if you're a Christian, you need to walk in love and you need to be patient and you need to be kind and gentle and these are the things you need to do if you're a Christian. And we forget the opening of it, the fruit of the Spirit. The NLT translation, I love it, it says, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in your life. Meaning, if you have been made new by the Spirit of God, where the Holy Spirit comes in by the goodness and grace of God to change your heart, take out that stony, stubborn, sinful heart, and replace it with a new heart, then the fruit, the evidence of the Spirit of God being in your life is that he will make you a loving person. He will give you love for people that you couldn't love before. That person on the other side of the political aisle, hello, I'm going to look up so I don't look at anybody. (laughs) That person on the other side of the political aisle that you might even hate, if the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, he gives you love for that person to where I'm not going, oh, that stupid, idiotic such and such, but you start going, God, save them. God, would you show that person your grace and mercy? God, would you reach into their chest? Would you show them their need for Christ? Would you show them that they're under sin? Would you show them, God, please grant them repentance? God gives you love for that person with the new heart, the spirit of God inside of you. The patience that you lack, the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to work patience in your heart. The kindness that you lack, these are not check marks of how to be a Christian. These are the evidences that you are a Christian. The difference is, are you trying to become a Christian by the good things you do, or are the good things that you do overflowing out of a heart that's been made new by Christ, where he motivates you and drives you and changes you from the Holy Spirit inside to where the good works come out of you, rather than you try and bring them into you to earn right standing with God. Law and grace. The law was given so we would realize that something is wrong with us. Rendering us incapable of obeying God's law so our hearts would begin longing for salvation from our fallen condition. Again, as we're in this season of Lent, I want to encourage you to try and and put yourself, if you can, Imagine and put yourself in that position of the Old Testament where they for thousands of years from the fall in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man for thousands of years as God strategically and according to his timing and plan continues to unfold and unroll more things throughout history that all those years it took thousands and thousands of years before the people were ready to acknowledge their need for a savior, their need for a Messiah. And those who did not realize, who who never allowed the law to confront their heart, to get them to go, I know the law, I know what's good, I know what's required. Something's wrong in here. When Jesus finally shows up, they hate him. If there's someone who has not allowed the law to confront their sin and help them realize they need a savior, when Jesus shows up, they hate him because he confronts their self-righteousness. He calls out their ungodly motivations for doing good. 
He says, you guys, when you pray, when you fast in this season of Lent, don't disfigure your faces so that other people will see it and go, oh, wow, they're fasting. When you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, but do your good deeds in secret. For your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. But to the people who were broken, the people who were longing, hungry for a Savior, when Jesus shows up, they break open vessels of the most expensive perfume you could buy, and then they wash his feet with their hair. They give up everything to follow Jesus. They leave their nets, they leave their job, they leave their career that was set up for them in the family business so that they could follow Jesus. Even after Jesus is resurrected from the dead and ascends into heaven, even after that, these people are willing to die for Christ. Why? Because they were broken sinners and they were saved by a good savior. See, the law points us to our need for Christ. It's our walk bottom line there this week. If you want to share it on social media or whatever, the law points us to our need for Christ. We're going to turn over one page to Romans chapter five. We'll start reading in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who as a type of the one who was to come, or who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, we will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Amen. Here. Paul is saying that if we're in Christ, it's no longer our responsibility to try and perfectly obey the law. Our responsibility is to pursue Jesus Christ. Listen, the law is good, okay? It is our responsibility to pursue Jesus Christ, to adore Jesus Christ, to elevate him to the, to the highest place of affections within our heart, where we love him more than anything else. This is why Luke chapter 15, Jesus says, listen, if you don't hate father and mother, child, family member, if you don't hate everyone more than me, and he's using hyperbole there as he says hate, he's saying compared to loving me, if you don't push everyone else aside, you're not worthy of me. And he says, unless you're willing to let go of everything, unless you're willing to take up your cross and die daily and follow Jesus Christ and do as it says in Galatians chapter 2, that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life that I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That in this life, I am not under law anymore. I'm under grace. I've received the Spirit of God inside of me that changes my heart and motivates me now to want to obey God, not to earn, but to please. Not that I want to earn anything from God because I cannot because the law is too heavy. But I would let that law crush me to where I would cling to Christ who can pick it up for me and then he can change my heart to where I want to obey Jesus Christ. And I don't need the preacher to tell me, you better pray because I want to spend that time in prayer with the Lord. I don't need the preacher to tell me you better read your Bible because his word, it is the disciples, when thousands of disciples are leaving Jesus and Jesus turns to his disciples and said, are you guys gonna leave too? Oh, that God would grace us to respond the way his disciples responded and say, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. I don't need someone else to say you better read your Bible when I'm going, you alone, God have the words of life. And in a world that is working hard to try and defame Christianity and, and try to, to 
debilitate Christianity and trying to say even Christianity is unrighteousness. I, I want the word of God so that I am anchored in the truth so that when the lies and every wind of doctrine that comes my way trying to lead me astray, I can go, no, I, I, I want God's word. I live by his word. I'm hungry for it. Jesus himself said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. His disciples one time to say, aren't you hungry? And he says, I have food you don't know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. When we come under grace, it's not that we're required to live under the law anymore. The Holy Spirit empowers us to please God, empowers us to obey God, gives us the desire to where we want to. And he's going on to say, well, now that we know that the law has revealed sin and that the, gra the, the magnanimous size of sin shows how gracious and how good God is that he could overcome the amount of sin in our lives, well, then shouldn't we say more? You say, no, 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 no. You've got to realize in Christ, you have become dead to sin. And baptism, that's a representation, a picture of being buried with Christ, that the old man is dead. And now... We're alive unto Christ, that we live our lives as ambassadors for Christ in this world, where our mission is to cry out to others, would you, would you be reconciled to God as well? He saved this wicked, wicked sinner. Would you be reconciled to him also? His grace is available for you also. There's nothing special about me. It's all the goodness of God. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. And he said, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I labored harder. I worked harder than everyone else. And he says, yet not I, though it wasn't I, but the grace of God in me. Paul is saying, any good in me, anything that looks good, even me working hard to obey, because there will be days like that. There will be days you don't feel it. There will be days that sin is enticing. Even working hard to resist and working hard to obey and working hard in spiritual disciplines, even that hard work, Paul says, is the grace of God in me working. Not so I can go, man, I did a good job today, but so I could go, thank you, God, for helping me today. Every win, every victory, every success, every moment of resisting sin, every moment of doing good, every single one of them is the grace of God in the child of God, empowering them to give glory back to God. Why? Because everyone's a sinner. There's none righteous. In this Lenten season of emptying, yes, let us empty ourselves of hindrances. Yes, let us empty ourselves of comforts. Yes, let us empty ourselves of self-righteousness. Yes, let us empty ourselves of worldly appetites and affections. But in light of what we've read today, let us empty ourselves of excuses. Let us empty ourselves of the pressures to feel like we need to present ourselves as holy, awesome, righteous people. And let's make way from that burden of law 
to receive the goodness and grace of Christ to where we're not trying to make excuses for who we have been, but to go, yeah, I, if there's any good in me, if there's any, it is only, only by the grace of God that we might place our hope outside of ourselves, outside of our own goodness, and upon the only one who would come and make all things right, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you. Thank you that, that you love us enough to not let us think that our condition is okay when it's not. Thank you that, that you're a good physician, that you're not one who would sit in the examining room and look at the conditions of our heart and go, yep, you're good. But like a faithful physician would notify us of our condition, that you would let us understand the gravity of what we're dealing with. And as that faithful physician, you would also show us the cure, the remedy, the healing of not placing our faith in our own goodness, not looking for a cure in our abilities, but to cling to the good, faithful works and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That our only hope would be set in the blood of Christ that was good enough to pay for our sins. That our only hope would be in his ability to fulfill the law. That our only hope is that we could be buried with Christ and with him also be raised to new life in Christ that where any man who's in Christ could be a new creation, where the old things would be passed away and all things would be made new. That you would reach in the heart of the dead sinner. God, I pray I ask you right now, today, in this very moment, I ask you in this room and where people are online, in their home, in their office, in their car, that you would reach into the stony, stubborn, rebellious, sinful, wicked heart and crush it and then tear it out and replace it with a new heart. God, right now, let there be freedom from sin. God, I pray right now you would make hearts new. God, I ask that if there was someone here listening or online that has thought that they knew you, that they did not, that you would show them their need right now and help them go, I'm a sinner and I need Christ. Help us now, God. Let today be the day of salvation. God, for those of us who know you, those who have already been made new, that you would continue to stir our affections for you to where sin would look hideous, to where sin would not be enticing, that you would help us hate sin in our own hearts the way that you do, that we could live by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, not according to the flesh, and give glory and honor to you that every victory, every moment, we wouldn't use as a moment to try and impress others or think that we're amazing, but to continually from gratitude say, thank you, 
God for changing me. In Jesus' name, amen.